Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore Jews and Judaism. This month, we are finally going to discuss the large-lobed elephant in the room, the Ferengi. Oh no. Yes. Do we have to? We do. I think I have normal-sized ears, you? I definitely have normal-sized ears, but I don't have a normal-sized nose. (laughs) (laughs) I have a very large head overall, which I guess the Ferengi do too. And I I do have have some funny bumps in it. I can't even buy regular hats. Oh. (laughs) Poor Josh. Chava, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing, Josh? I'm feeling like finally settled. My wife and I had like a really big change since the beginning of COVID. We had been living first with my parents and then with my in-laws. And then like a month ago, we bought a house, which is crazy because it's Toronto and we didn't think we'd ever be able to do that. And we had like a really quick closing. Plus like we were moving from three places into one because it was like the apartment and my parents and my in-laws all going to here. And today's the first day where I feel like we're not like unpacked, but we're unpacked enough that it feels like very livable. Like you actually live there now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I'm super happy to be here. We have a space that's our own and like the house isn't perfect by any means. It's it's a real starter home, but it's ours and I'm like really excited and I feel like really lucky to be here, but I'm also just like ecstatic about it. Awesome. Although it does feel kind of weird to be like so ecstatic about this when like the world is still on fire, kind of. Yeah, definitely feels like it's on fire. Although I think it's it's definitely more on fire for our southern neighbors than it is here. Yeah, it's strange. Toronto is not back to normal, but the ways in which it's not back to normal are reassuring, which is that everybody's wearing their masks and staying home a lot and doing all the things we're supposed to do with like a very gradual opening. And as a result of that, you know, new infections are way down, but south of the border, they're just like exploding. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's really scary. Honestly, I hope that we don't open the border anytime soon. It feels like the United States has just fallen off the deep end. Yeah, I'm just so curious how November is going to go. I feel like this is the most important election ever. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the health crisis. It's about it's structural, right? It's about how America provides stability for the world, or so we thought, but they can't take the basic steps that like basically every other Western country is doing to address this threat head on. And I think the warning signs have been there for a long time, but this has really brought it to a head. Yeah, it's totally exposed. The ways in which it is really not a first world country, not providing healthcare to all of their citizens. That's like, who thinks that that's something that happens in the most technologically advanced country in the world? When I talk to American friends, they're like surprised when I tell them that like, masks are not controversial here. And like, left wing and right wing politicians are basically on the same page when it comes to the timetable for reopening. Totally. It's not it's not a partisan topic. It's just like safety of everyone. So should we talk Ferengi a little bit? I guess. This is like Dumbo. (laughs) The giant eared flying elephant in the room. And like the original Dumbo, very racist. The Hebrew school homework this month span a pretty long stretch from the beginning of Next Gen to pretty close to the end of Deep Space Nine. 
It was the Next Gen episode, The Last Outpost, and then the Deep Space Nine episodes, Family Business, Bar Association, and The Magnificent Ferengi. One thing that I didn't realize until after I sat down and watched them all was that we missed a Zek episode with the Grand Nagus. Oh, yeah, true. Although reference, of course, was made to him. I think he was supposed to be the hostage in the Magnificent Ferengi, and that Wallace Shawn wasn't available, and so they subbed in <laughs> Ishka or Mugi at the last minute, who would like make a lot more sense for being a Dominion hostage rather than like Quark's mom, like let's steal the head of Ferenginar, not Quark's mom. Yeah. <laughs> Even though she really is the de facto head of Ferenginar. Exactly. I don't know. I really like that, actually. <laughs> we had a really cool Reb Alert this month, and I wonder if maybe we should go right to Reb Alert now, because our guest... Professor Jonathan Brampman provides like a really exceptional overview of the development of anti-Semitism, how it's portrayed in popular media, and how that might apply to the Ferengi. So should we go to Reb Alert now? Let's go to Reb Alert. Delay that order, number one. Red Alert. Welcome to Reb Alert. Here with us this month is Jonathan Brampman, a visiting assistant professor of English and Jewish studies at Cornell University. John works to translate academic research on gender, sexuality, race, and pop culture into mainstream education, and he teaches on gender and Jewish studies, including the depiction of Jews on television. John, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you for having me. I guess the Ferengi are in some ways the elephant in the room when we're talking about Star Trek and the Jews. And I think since their very shaky introduction, which which we watched as part of the Hebrew school homework, there have, you know, consistently been questions about like, are, are these an anti-Semitic caricature? But before we can really understand that, maybe you can talk to us about, you know, models of how Jews are depicted on television and a model that we can use for identifying when problematic depictions are arising. So just like movies might give a character a limp wrist or a lisp to mark them as gay without directly saying it, there are tons of codes for marking characters as Jewish without explicitly calling them Jewish. And this happens on shows like Seinfeld and The Nanny, but it can also be used to associate aliens like the Ferengi with Jewishness, even if the word Jew is never spoken. Is it cool if I give a little background on what these Jewish codes are and where they come from? Please, yeah. So these codes can include physical traits like big noses or dark curly hair, but also behavioral traits like nasal quavery voices, which we definitely hear from the Ferengi, also neurotic twitchy body language or deviant gender and sexuality, like images of overbearing Jewish mothers and neurotic Jewish sons, which again, we get with the Ferengi, like Mugi as the overbearing Jewish mother. These ideas about how Jews look, speak, and act come from a really long anti-Semitic history. We can trace these codes not only to 1930s Nazi propaganda or 19th century American stage productions of The Merchant of Venice, but really back through the centuries to the 1200s. The 1200s are when European Christian art start to depict Jews as physically different from Christians, with big noses or darker skin, sometimes sinister facial hair. The 1300s is when you first get the accusation that Jewish men menstruate as 
punishment for crucifying Jesus. And by the 1500s, this idea of Jewish male menstruation fits into a broader accusation that Jews have deviant gender and sexuality, even a claim by the Spanish Inquisition that Jews invented sodomy to sexually corrupt Christians. So these are the very early roots of present-day images of feminized Jewish men. And as just one other example, the kind of nasal quavery voice that we hear from the Ferengi or hear from Jerry Seinfeld comes specifically from a 19th century racial claim about Jews. The idea was that Jews have racially different facial muscles than Christians, and that these muscles not only produce ugly noses or ugly lips, but also deviant Jewish voices that can never sound like Christian voices, and that convey the inner perversion or sinfulness of Jews and the inability of Jews to assimilate. And Jewish men were specifically accused of speaking like gay men with quavery, sing-song, breaking voices. So these are just a few examples of how our present-day pop cultural tropes to mark characters like the Ferengi as Jewish are like the latest generation, the next generation, in a very long lineage of anti-Semitic stereotypes. We talked in our first episode about the Rugrats Jewish holiday specials and how the ADL had said that the depiction of the grandfather was anti-Semitic and the animators responded like, no, I was drawing my grandfather. So (laughs) when it comes to the Ferengi, you know, Rom, uh, Quark, Nog, the Grand Nagus, sometimes Ishka, depending on, um, on which actor is portraying her, are played by Jews. And it's sort of hard to think about how much of those traits are something that's being written into the character versus how much of it is like Armin Shimmerman, a wonderful Jewish actor who sort of brings who he is to the role. To me, Actually, the question is how the traits or cultural references of Jewish actors get recruited into the larger plot. So Mm. on a TV show like Broad City, I love how that show has like very bossy, powerful Jewish women, including Jewish mothers, but they are always portrayed with such love. And the show is from the perspective of Jewish women. So even when they do over the top things, the camera and the writing always encourage the audience to empathize with them. Like when Jewish characters on Broad City curse out men who are sexually harassing them on the street. Whereas in Star Trek, especially Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, the stereotypical Jewish traits of the Ferengi are always used negatively. The whole show is from the perspective of the human characters, who I would argue are actually coded as Gentile Christian characters implicitly. Um, And we are always associating the stereotypically Jewish traits of the Ferengi with, at best, comedic relief, and at worst, real ethical deviousness. I was very curious that you you mentioned gender, because it's not something I'd never really thought about for, like, uh, an anti-Semitic trope. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like... Aside from like men being considered feminine in pop culture, which until this moment I hadn't really thought of. So the idea of the weak, unathletic Jewish male comes out of a really long racial history. Um, A lot of present day Jews were familiar with stereotypes of the kind of nebbishy nice Jewish boy or the domineering Jewish mother or Jewish American princess, but we don't know where these stereotypes come from. And so um, really from the rise of race as a modern concept and tool for discriminating, a really central way that Jews were described as racially different was through gender and sexual stereotypes. So in addition to saying that Jews were darker or uglier or had black curly hair, one of the ways that European Christian thinkers 
racially defined Jews as separate from Gentiles was by claiming that Jews have inherently deviant gender and sexuality. So again, the idea of Jewish male menstruation, but also Jewish women were stereotyped in this really complicated way in the figure of the beautiful Jewess, which was a common pop culture figure in paintings, literature, plays, even like Jessica from The Merchant of Venice. And the Jewess is often kind of stigmatized the way drag queens get stigmatized today. She's imagined as somebody who performs this over-the-top femininity, but it's really a facade for her perverse masculinity underneath. Mm. And this accusation was actually tied to biblical depictions, like Judith in the Bible who seduces Holofernes only to behead him. And so the figure of the sexy but tricky and masculinized Jewess is one example of racial stereotypes about Jews because her gender ambiguity was tied to her racial ambiguity. She was always sort of exoticized, like the forbidden fruit for white Christian men. Hmm. What do we do with the extreme patriarchy that is depicted as existing within Ferengi society? And should we take anything from the fact that over the course of Deep Space Nine, that patriarchy is chipped away at and the series ends with Ranganar kind of on the verge of a revolution? So like most aliens in Star Trek, I think the Ferengi are a hodgepodge of many cultural influences. And I think at different times, they are metaphors, both for stereotypes about Jews and about Muslims. And the treatment of women in Ferengi society is sort of like this extreme but inverse version of how Orthodox Jewish women are sometimes treated and how women are treated in some Muslim communities. So um, on Ferenginar, um, women are extremely restricted. They can't participate in economic or governmental life, but they're also expected to be completely naked all the time. And that's part of their oppression. Um, so I definitely think this plays on both some anti-Semitic and Islamophobic tropes. But then also it's pretty cool that uh, Mugi, as the over-the-top Jewish mother character, actually gets to lead a feminist revolution. And we could see that as possibly a positive reference, maybe even unintentional, to the fact that so many Jewish women have been leaders in North American feminist movements, and that there are also now um, feminist movements within really all branches of Judaism, including orthodoxy. When we were messaging before this session, you, you talked to us a little bit about the idea of Christian normativity in Deep Space Nine, that Pork is always pushed to admit that, you know, he'll really be happy if he can take on these kind of Western classic Federation values. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yes. So one of the ways that Star Trek instructs the audience to believe that the Federation way is really best and that everything Ferengi is really perverse and wrong is that we constantly see that Quark and Rom and Nog would be happiest if they just accepted that the Federation way is really best. Certainly we see this directly with Nog and Rom who do assimilate into the Federation and take on roles in the Federation and become pretty negative toward Ferengi ways of life. Um, but Quark is more complicated. He always complains about Federation ethics and specifically Specifically, root beer becomes a metaphor for the Federation way. It's kind of sugary sweet and he doesn't like it, just like he finds humans overly earnest. And yet when the Dominion takes over the station and he gets drunk, he's at this vulnerable moment and he says, I miss selling root beer. So it's one of many moments where we realize that actually he's just being really stubborn. And if he were honest with himself, he would admit the Federation way is better. I think maybe it's in Way of the Warrior, that conversation between Quark and Garrick about the Federation as 
bubbly but insidious. Yes. It's something that that really resonates with me where I guess like the hegemonic Christian world is expansive and terrifying, but also like at least for me living here in Canada, it is like the comfort of the structure that I rely on. Mm. It's vile. I know. It's so bubbly and cloying and happy. Just like the Federation. But you know what's really frightening? If you drink enough of it, you begin to like it. I think certainly when it comes to discussions of Christmas, for example, that's a common theme for people raising Jewish children. How do you help Jewish children make sense of and value their own culture when the Christonormative culture around them uh, seems so much shinier? But I think what I find more insidious in Star Trek's depiction of Christonormativity is how it resonates with Christian narratives of supersessionism, which is the idea that Christianity completes Judaism, that it's the updated version, ethically and theologically, and therefore that Jews and Judaism are always stuck at a lower, incomplete stage of ethical development. This is a common idea in terms of trying to convert Jews, this idea of like, what's wrong with Jews that they can't see the obvious truth that Jesus is savior and our way is better. And that there must be something intentionally obstinate and perverse in Jews that they refuse to admit the self-evident truth. And we definitely get that theme throughout Star Trek that Quark is stubbornly, perversely refusing to admit the self-evident truth that the Federation way is better. Why are Jews super associated with money and being rich and controlling the global economy? And what, how is that really connected to uh, the Ferengi? One of the main reasons that Jews are associated with money is that during the Middle Ages, Christian economies in Europe needed moneylenders, but also forbade moneylending. And therefore, the only people who could do that were Jews who were simultaneously forbidden from most other economic activities, such as joining artisan or merchant guilds or farming. So Jews were in a position where the only thing basically that they could do to support themselves was moneylending, which was crucial to the economy, but was also seen as sinful and abusive. And so that's one of the origin points of this negative association between Jews and money, even into the present, there's a simultaneous assumption that Jews are all wealthy, but also that that wealth is ill-gotten. So the same people who praise figures like Donald Trump and see their wealth as proof of wisdom or success or grit would look at a Jewish person who's wealthy and see it as proof of their deviousness and their repulsive attempt to gain power over others. For most minorities, including Jewish people, queer people, people of color, women, and those at the intersections, anytime any minority gets any degree of success, any accomplishment, they are immediately accused of trying to take over. So I think we should look at those accusations with a grain of salt. One of the defenses that individuals involved on the creative side of Star Trek, including Ira Stephen Bear, who was the showrunner on Deep Space Nine from season three onward, and, and also Armin Shimmerman, is that the Ferengi are not meant to be any kind of Jewish stereotype, but a criticism of capitalism and that who they're mocking is all of us living in the 20th or 21st century Entry in a capitalist world. I'm so glad you brought this up. There's a contradiction between how the producers define the Ferengi as metaphors for all 
bad, greedy humans in the 20th century and their methods for doing so. Star Trek's method for associating the Ferengi with the bad greed of the present day is to assign them anti-Semitic Jewish codes. So you get a product where the characters who embody the bad, greedy present and everything we're trying to move beyond are coded Jewish, while the Federation, who embodies the good future ethical humans who've moved beyond greed, everything we're striving to become are coded Christian. So again, we get this theme of Christian supersessionism. What do we do with Ishka? Oh, I love Ishka. There is an idea in feminist theory called the unruly woman. And it describes women characters, particularly comedians, who take all the stigmas assigned to them as women, particularly Jewish women and or women of color or queer or fat women, and flip all those stigmas on their head to laugh back at dominant institutions and prejudices. So Ishka very much knows how she is seen in Ferengi society and riotously refuses that. And some of her best moments are when she actually uses Ferengi gender stereotypes against the Ferengi government. Like in Family Business, is that the episode where she stands accused of engaging in commerce? Mm-hmm. At the end, she has to sign a confession um, acknowledging that she has done wrong by earning money. And when the government official, Brunt, is in her apartment, she does this very funny thing where she keeps screwing with him by acting so girlishly feminine that she can't understand what he's saying. So she, she like seductively licks her thumb at him. He gives her instructions and she bats her eyelashes and she like acts like she can't figure out what he wants. And so essentially she is taking the various stereotypes that he's trying to enforce on her and exaggerating them so far that A, everyone can see these are ridiculous social norms, not organic facts, and they actually undermine the power he's trying to enforce on her. And I don't. I hope I'm not relying on stereotypes here, but like women being involved in business in generations where it would be unexpected is something that feels very Jewish to me and something that like resonates with my own family history because like on both sides of my family, people were peddlers and shopkeepers. The dynamic of that economic situation was that at least in my family, I feel like husbands and wives were equal partners in that business. Think of like my grandparents on both sides where both grandmothers took roles in family businesses that I think were uncommon for their generation because of the fact that as Jews, they were steered towards these sort of merchant positions. So actually, one of the historical reasons that Jews were stereotyped with deviant gender is that in like medieval and early modern Europe, It was actually kind of idealized in some Jewish communities that a perfect man, if he had the means, would be studying all day and kind of define himself as a religious scholar and be supported by his wife who was out in the material world earning money. So in some Ashkenazi communities, it actually was normative and traditional for Jewish women to be shopkeepers, and in some cases actually to know local languages better than their husbands. And in fact, that trend became a source of stigma on Jewish women within Jewish communities as those communities sought assimilation. So Jewish women who had historically played public roles in supporting their families then became the target of criticism because they were seen as embarrassingly out of step with Gentile gender norms and therefore as holding back their families from full acceptance. I think that that actually still really exists in the ultra-Orthodox community because the men Mm -hmm. will go and be learners all day Mm -hmm. and the women often are more educated in secular subjects like math. Likewise, so Abby Stein, who's a very well-known Jewish trans woman who grew up in the Sotmar community in Brooklyn, mentions that actually 
people who were raised as women were more likely in her community to speak fluent English Mm -hmm. and that she didn't learn English until her 20s. Images like the overbearing Jewish mother or the emasculating Jewish American princess partially stem from this dynamic in Jewish families in the U.S. in the early 20th or mid 20th century when Jewish husbands and sons were kind of looking for scapegoats for why they weren't gaining full acceptance. And rather than sometimes saying, oh, it's because society's anti-Semitic, an easier target was to turn at Jewish women and say, quote, you're holding us back by not acting like a properly refined wife, or you're not giving me the respect I deserve as a man. That's totally sexist. And it's also totally what we see in Quark's relationship with Moody. Yeah. So I think of um, things like the Marx Brothers, for example, of like how much of the depiction of the Jewish mother has maybe been created by Jewish men. Oh yeah, absolutely. So certainly writers like Philip Roth get the quote credit or maybe the infamy for popularizing these stereotypes. And this actually fits into a broader dynamic of Jewish authors and filmmakers in US pop culture popularizing a lot of anti-Semitic stereotypes. Like even in the early film industry, a lot of Jewish immigrants helped to found Hollywood but also in many cases censored Jewish characters altogether, pressured Jewish stars to bob their noses or hide their Jewish identities. Or when they did present Jews, even by the early 20s, there was a kind of screen stereotype of the greasy, emasculated, socially awkward, déclassé immigrant Jew. Do you think the Ferengi are redeemable? You know, Star Trek isn't over. Are there things that could be done to repair the Ferengi or or are they uh, beyond fixing at this point? I think the word redeem is very interesting because of its Christian religious connotations. Star Trek has previously tried to redeem the Ferengi by assimilating them into Christonormative human values on the show. There's a scene when Jadzia Dax says to Rom, oh, that was very enlightened of you, Rom. You're the least Ferengi-like Ferengi I know. And he doesn't look too thrilled. So often Ferengi characters get redeemed the more they conform to Federation norms, which totally fits into longstanding narratives claiming that Jews can only gain acceptance by de-Judaizing themselves and converting. Also something done to Vulcans as well in Star Trek, who also I think are sometimes a mirror for Jews. Oh, that's super interesting. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Um, So it would be interesting to see Ferengi characters who are redeemed not by changing them, but by changing our perspective about them and questioning human perspectives on them. Particularly an idea that would have to change about the Ferengi is how Star Trek presents them as grotesque. There's this idea in literary theory that's actually so applicable to Star Trek and especially the Ferengi that the series gets divided into classical bodies and grotesque bodies. Classical bodies are elegantly self-contained. They're in control of their body language and their desires and their voices, think of Jean-Luc Picard. Mm -hmm. Whereas grotesque bodies are not just ugly, but out of control, overflowing, wrinkly, slimy, greasy, overwhelmed with their perverse lusts. So think of the episode, The Last Outpost, and how the first shot of Damon Tarr, I think, is this zoomed-in shot of his gross, slimy, pointy teeth. Too close to the camera. Yeah, (laughs) too close to the camera. And how he and his creaky, loud voice are contrasted against the kind of slim, composed, 
Greek statue vibe of Jean-Luc Picard. And in fact, throughout Star Trek, characters who are good or who are assimilable to the Federation are presented as classical bodies, whereas characters who are presented as bad because they refuse to conform to the Federation norms are presented as grotesque, slimy, gross bodies like the Borg, the Klingons, and the Ferengi. Mm -hmm. So I would be very interested to see a version of the Ferengi who are not only written differently, but also somehow appear no longer as grotesque. I do think it has improved since the last outpost, though. Like, throughout DS9, you can really see that they're, they, like, wear nice clothing and they're respectable sometimes. Uh, Whereas in the last outpost, they're, like, cowering as this, like, disgusting type creature. Yes. I do think that the term respectability is also very interesting because it, again, fits into this idea that minorities are often positioned as more respectable the more we conform to dominant norms. And that often creates a hierarchy where some people in a minoritized group like Jews gain their respectability by participating in stigma against other less assimilated people. I think most secular or reform Jews at some time or another have felt the temptation to distance themselves from Hasidim and to kind of gain acceptance by saying, oh, I'm not like those Jews, you know, I'm normal. Similarly, on Star Trek, usually Ferengi characters that we like not only conform to Federation norms, but their likability explicitly comes through contrast against other Ferengi, like Brunt, who don't conform. Mm-hmm. Hava, I think last week when speaking about Spock, you said, until the Hasidim are socially accepted, really, no Jews are socially accepted. Yeah. Likewise, I would be interested to see a version of the cool, admirable Ferengi who don't win their likability by dumping on other Ferengi and validating prejudice against them. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, you've left us with a lot to think about here, and, and thank you so much for joining. Before we let you go, could you tell us uh, where listeners can find out more about you and maybe some projects you have on the go right now? Definitely. First of all, thank you for having me. And you can learn more about what I do on my website, jonathanbranfman.com, or my Twitter hashtag is at John Branfman, J-O-N-B-R-A-N-F-M-A-N. And I write generally about Jewish millennial stars in pop culture. So if you like hearing about Zac Efron, Drake, Tiffany Haddish, Alana Glazer, come check it out. John, thanks so much for joining us at Rebel Alert. Thank you for having me. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you. Welcome back from Reb Alert. Josh, that was fascinating. Yeah, he's great to talk to. Really? I follow his Twitter and there's always like really interesting stuff there. So I'm so glad we were able to get him on. Yeah, feel very lucky. Hopefully he'll join us again. Maybe the best way to do this is go episode by episode. Yeah. We can start with the beginning, which was the last outpost. Mm -hmm. What'd you think of this one? This episode is so gross. (laughs) I mean, in one word. (laughs) It's Definitely grotesque. It has like a first season weirdness. Yes. That we've spotted before. Yeah. The characters are not quite themselves yet. Like Picard is still really mean on the bridge. <laughs> There's like all kinds of strange things in here. Like where Jordy goes, woo-wee, after he has that big idea to free the ship, which is to put the ship in reverse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's so many weird things in this episode. Like the captain's log. Usually the captain's log feels like it could be in the show. Show, but this one, it's sort of like a soliloquy. It takes place like mid-scene when Picard 
should have been like standing silently on the bridge waiting to respond. Worf's eyebrows are on backwards for a big chunk of the episode. Oh, yeah, I loved Worf in this episode. Like his hair was just great. <laughs> Even the look of the show is off. Like Worf still has the old forehead. Mm-hmm. In the conference room, there's like smudges on the glass everywhere and you can see like reflections of the camera in them. I think eventually they just took the glass out and just had like a black <laughs> background behind it. The whole thing with the Chinese finger traps, it was very like original series like Riker yeah. beaming over the finger traps at the end it, it felt like you know we'll send them over there where there'll be no triple at all yeah definitely these are not the Ferengi of Deep Space Nine are they no definitely not even though Armin Shimmerman who plays Quark is one of the Ferengi yeah I thought that was so funny they're just so snivelly do you know what I mean Mm-hmm. it's maybe worth talking about like where they came from so I did a little bit of digging Ferengi were envisioned as the new villain for Next Gen, before they didn't really pan out, they were going to be like the baddie of the series. And it was only when they kind of failed that they decided to introduce the Borg, which I think they start hinting at in the episode, The Neutral Zone, which is the finale of season one. It's obviously like laughable now to think about the Ferengi as the main villain of Next Gen. But I found this memo. I suspect that maybe it was published by Lincoln Enterprise, which was actually Gene and Majel's company that would like sell Star Trek memorabilia. So this is a memo dated May 11th, 1987 from Gene Roddenberry to the rest of the Next Gen pre-production staff. And I'm going to sort of paraphrase from it and jump through a few places. This, I think, is helpful because it sort of tells us what they were thinking of when they put these together. Mm -hmm. The Ferengi are fine-boned, small, olive-complected, and completely hairless. Their ears protrude at right angles to their face. They are not as strong as humans, but they are somewhat faster than even the fastest humans. They have poor eyesight and require brilliant lighting. Their hearing, however, is exceptionally sensitive. They also have prodigious sexual appetites, and it is said that their genitals are of a shape and dimension that Earthwomen found as enjoyable as their sexual technique. And I think if there's one thing we know about Gene Roddenberry, it's that he definitely likes to pay a lot of attention to the penises of the characters he creates. <laughs> we will meet no Ferengi females because they consider sexual equality another example of human lunacy. They are not the bad guys in the way that Klingons were. Instead of being bullies, they are connivers and manipulators. The Ferengi consider themselves too civilized to employ brute force, except when they can label it cleverness. The Ferengi represent capitalism carried to an extreme. They are the 24th century robber barons who believe that it's nature's way to reward the clever at the cost of the weak. If the Ferengi could meet 19th or 20th century humans, they would find much agreement in many things and wonder where the 24th century human went wrong. The Ferengi, in other words, represent much of the worst of the audience's world. And then I want to add one more thing. So this <laughs> comes from an interview in the magazine Cinefantastique. I don't have the actual interview. I was reading a quote from Memory Alpha of Cinefantastique, and it's with Herb Wright, who wrote this episode. And he said of Gene Roddenberry... He wanted us to put gigantic cod pieces on the Ferengi. He spent 25 minutes explaining to me all the sexual positions the Ferengi could go through. I finally said, Gene, this is a family show on at 7 p.m. on Saturdays. And Gene said, okay, you're right. <laughs> Why? Why is that such a fascination or design of the Ferengi to have? Like, I don't get it. I mean, I think if we're to listen to John Bramfman, then maybe it is part of the anti-Semitic trope. 
And there are parts of like the physical description that the memo opens with that would line up with European racist ideas of what a Jew looks like. And Mm -hmm. of course, like you and I know that Jews look like everyone and they're Jews of all appearances. But fine-boned, small, olive-complected, and fast, which I guess can be like sneakiness rather than strength. Yes. And I think also the penises thing was like part of a European anti-Semitic racialized idea of Jews. Right. The strange ideas about mixed sexuality and yeah. Right. That there was a sexual perversion to Jews in a way that was like both hypersexualized, but also like feminized at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's all there. Not all of these things come out in the series. So like, I don't think the Ferengi are depicted as fast. And they're not really olive either. They're more orangey. They are small. And I know that throughout all the series, they had a height maximum on actors who'd play Ferengi. Interesting. What else strikes you from The Last Outpost? One of the things I found really interesting was when the Ferengi are on the planet and they're very loud noises and they're trying to cover their ears. It almost reminded me of like the trope of the Jewish vampire that you could scare away with garlic and things like that. Mm-hmm. Just their reaction was that type of action that you would expect in that kind of situation. Just very animalistic and kind of in an evil way. Yeah. I thought the conversation between Riker and the portal was really interesting. I mean, the concept of a civilization that disappeared a million years ago galactic spanning civilization that's really cool and i could sit and like ponder out the possibilities of that (laughs) for a long time but one thing that the portal said struck me definitely as hitting certain anti-jewish tropes the portal says shall i destroy them and Riker says then they will learn nothing that really i think strikes at a medieval christian anti-judaism a justification for not wiping out the jews was that They represented a historical legacy of Christianity Mm -hmm. and needed to exist as like an example of what Christians had improved upon. Yeah, like the primitive. Right. And that like improved upon primitive is, is something that Data talks about too. You know, he analogizes them to the ocean going Yankee traders uh, who sail the galaxy in search of mercantile and territorial opportunity. Data says the worst qualities of capitalists and conduct their affairs on the principle of caveat emptor, which is buyer beware. Thank you, law school. (laughs) (laughs) It also seemed like they were trying to really show how sneaky they were. Yeah. That's just like a classic trope the sneaky Jew who's like hiding their world domination plot. And that was kind of mirrored, I think, in the how they were discussing the Ferengi as perhaps having very advanced technology that they don't know about and that their entire society is just unknown. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of weirdness to this episode. Picard and Riker have their heads so far up their butts in this episode <laughs> in describing humanity as all like proper and civilized. But Picard is a terrible diplomat. He like starts a first contact situation by yelling at them and calling them jerks. And also, you know, this is season one next gen and they were kind of reinventing a world. But we know that humanity is not quite so perfect as they're presenting them to be here. And those are strings that they really pull at more in Deep Space Nine and Voyager in that like humanity may have structures in place, but the basics of human nature have not changed. Like get your head out of your ass, Riker. I, I also thought it was interesting how like the episode opens with a chase as the Ferengi stole the um, energy converters from mm-hmm. an unmanned monitor and 
I do appreciate that this episode was written 30 years before Star Trek Discovery, but like, come on, learn your Federation history, showing up to check out an unmanned monitor post being vandalized by a threatening species you haven't seen in a long time has gotten Starfleet into trouble before. (laughs) Uh, Pretty sure that's what started your last massive war. (laughs) So looking at this episode, do you think that the original depiction of the Ferengi was anti-Semitic? I mean, yeah, kind of. Do you not? No, I do. I think that Gene Roddenberry is being honest when he says, oh, the Ferengi are meant to be a capitalist and that's the worst of today's society. But I also think that when Gene Roddenberry pictures the capitalist who is the worst of today's society, he pictures like a sneaky, snarling, grotesque Jew. And (laughs) and that's why he put these physical stereotypes in. Yeah. Oh my God, those teeth. It's like perfect to chew Christian babies with. (laughs) (laughs) so the frankie never really worked on next gen they bring them back in a couple more early episodes as a real antagonist but then pretty quickly they slide into like comic relief Mm -hmm. and deep space nine takes a really different tact with them even having quark a ferengi as a regular on the series and and a bunch of other ferengi recurrings i have an interesting quote from Iris Stephen Bear, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Iris Stephen Bear was the head writer on Deep Space Nine for seasons three through seven. And he points out that himself and Deep Space Nine creators, Michael Piller and Rick Berman, are all members of the tribe, and they certainly didn't mean to, to have any anti-Semitism in the show. And Armin Shimmerman, who plays Quark, who's Jewish, as are basically all of the the actors who play recurring Ferengi on Deep Space Nine. He says that wherever he goes in the world, he gets asked about different groups, that in America, he gets asked if they represent Jews, in Australia, asked if they represent Chinese. And he thinks that that question reveals more about the biases of the person asking the question than the intention of the writers. Now, Mm -hmm. I will give Armin Shimmerman that I do think there's probably like anti-Asian tropes that are built into the Ferengi also. But I don't agree with him that they're like totally stripped of anti-Semitism. Yeah, definitely not. So many of the fundamental attributes of the Ferengi are just anti-Semitic tropes. Like, how could Mm -hmm. they not be connected in that way? I don't know. Like, it's not as bad as The Last Outpost, for sure. But like, it still was not even throughout Deep Space Nine. They're they're not considered like a good species. Yeah, like we kept hearing in Rebel Alert, they're like something to be improved upon whose values are fundamentally flawed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the values that they're presented with are flawed, but they're shown in a way that associates them with a Jewishness. And I also think of the argument that like, no, they're just meant to be a criticism of capitalism. The Ferengi are not a good critique of capitalism. I was always waiting for that episode where like the Federation is broke and needs to go to Ferenginar to like bail them out in the Dominion War or where, you know, like an entire planet's economy is being oppressed by these like systems of control. When I think about like the influences that capitalism has on our world and the way it's shaped every society on the planet, the Ferengi don't seem to have it. These are like a bunch of low level like peddlers. Even the Grand Nagus is just sort of putting together one kind of mercantile trade deal and Mm -hmm. then the next. Like when's the last time you saw a major CEO who wasn't extremely slickly dressed with a great PR team and in a beautiful suit and like, like portraying like real class and, and wealth to them because that's what CEOs like to depict themselves as. Well, 
I don't know. I think that the Ferengi have very good style. That's something I really believe. <laughs> Quirk is well dressed. Yeah. yeah, that like that. I don't know robe. about the furs in the last outpost. Which robe? The, the he always is wearing this like robe. It reminds me of Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat robe. Oh yeah, I think one of the things they figured out with Quirk was that because his headpiece was so big, they really needed to layer out his body. And like Armin Shimmerman is a very slim man. And that's why he's always like so adorned. When we see him in the mirror universe, it's like really shocking. He's in just like a black v-neck. And it's like, whoa, that is what Quark looks like (laughs) under all of those layers. I really like Quark. Yeah, me too. He is lovable. He's endearing. When I was a kid, I used to skip the Ferengi episodes. And over time, I think they've made a special place in my Star Trek art. (laughs) So you want to talk about family business? Yeah, this falls into a pretty familiar trope that a lot of Ferengi episodes fall into, which is either like Zek shows up and has a task for Quirk and hilarity ensues, or Ishka shows up or Brunt shows up and start making problems for Quirk. And here we get two of those things. <laughs> I think this is the first one with Ishka with uh, Moogie. Yeah, it is. Did you like this episode? I love this episode, actually. I thought it was so cute. I think that it definitely portrayed a very classic anti-Semitic trope. Although I'm not so sure how much I think it's like a stereotype that's untrue of the like Jewish son, trademark, (laughs) that is idolizing their mother and that basically sees their mother as like the perfect woman. And I think that that's like a very common Jewish son thing to do. We kind of get both of them because like Rom is like the doting, nebbish Jewish boy. Yes. And Quirk is the one who never calls his mother. And Ishka could not be any more of the the Hollywood trope of the Jewish mother. Yeah. She's like, oh, Rom, I want you to eat your whatever, you know, like that kind of mommy. Mm-hmm. But it's true. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that they portrayed the opposite of that Jewish son trademark. That is Quark, who's completely rejecting that and is basically embarrassed by his mother. But both of them are sort of like a demasculinized character. And I think that takes on anti-Semitic tropes as well. That Jews have like internalized a lot also. And I don't think it's absent from the Jewish tradition. Like we see even in the Talmud that classically masculine things like physical strength and being a warrior are not associated with Jewish masculinity in the rabbinic tradition, and that instead being a scholar is. Mm -hmm. Although biblically, I think that physical strength is very important. Like, for example, King David. So, like, classically, and I think this sort of, like, speaks to the divide between them, the Tanaim take King David and say, ah, the Tanakh is simply talking in metaphor when they speak of his physical strength, and what they really mean was that he was a master of Torah. (laughs) That's just silly, because I think explicitly in the Torah, it says his son had to build the temple because there was too much blood on King David's hands. Totally. And I think it speaks to like the radically different times in which these were written. Like we don't know when Samuel was written, but probably in like the late period of the Judean kings and maybe like revised in exile and and like times when like physical strength of the king was a very important thing to be writing about. And like the rabbis are writing eight, nine hundred years after that in a time when like they've been totally smashed and 
lots of them killed in a, a like a horrendously failed uprising against Roman rule. No temple, no Jewish sovereignty. The Judaism that they're trying to like make survive is the rabbinic Judaism of Torah and Chesed. Right. Yeah. I love Ishka. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell us why. I mean, she sees everything that's wrong with Ferengi society. Uh, right down to her own family. She reminds me of like women in my own family who had great business savvy coming from a society that wouldn't have expected it from women of that generation. Mm-hmm. And I think that she calls bullshit everywhere she sees it. So if she's associated with Jewish tropes, yeah, I'll I'll take them for Ishka. <laughs> I want her on our team. <laughs> Do you think that she is the Jewish woman waking up to the oppression that Jewish tradition pushes on to women? I think Ishka's been awake the whole time. She says, oh, even when your father was alive, talking about Ram and Quark's dad, he was a terrible businessman and he never listened to my advice. You spoke before about Jewish women in the Hasidic world more likely to have real world skills. Mm-hmm. Like, that that goes that goes way back. There's a reason we call Yiddish that the Mamalotion. Like it was women who were the literate ones in the community. And I think this tradition of Jewish women calling bullshit is not even a product of modernity, that it's been there all along. Because the Jewish tradition is like recorded by and largely for men, it's been obstructed from our history, but it's but it's probably there. I think that's true. But I also think that the main traditions are often forbidden for women. Mm-hmm. Forbidden? Yeah, I think women traditionally are forbidden from studying Talmud, or certainly like Gemara, which is like a portion of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. And that prohibition is maintained in some Haredi communities today, though, like increasingly ignored in the modern Orthodox world. Yes, that's kind of what I meant by the like Jewish awakening to embracing the culture and doing the things yourself and following the traditions or learning Talmud, for example. And of course, like Ishka does bring about a feminist revolution on Ferenginar, just just not in this episode. <laughs> yes. Do you want to talk about Bar Association? Sure. So this is the one that opens during Bajoran Ramadan or Bajoran <laughs> Bain Metzarim, the three weeks. The station is like really quiet and Ram has a boo-boo in his ear, possibly from too much masturbating. They're a little bit ambiguous on that. This episode had some real cringe moments. What did you think of it? Um, I really liked it because it it kind of fleshed out Rom as a character Mm -hmm. and really gave him a purpose that was outside of his son being in Starfleet and outside of just Quark being his intelligent brother. Yeah. And it really made him have this positive identity, I thought. I actually thought that Bar Association really flipped the anti-Semitic trope that you would that you would have expected. Like I know that Jews are associated with communist ideals and like the Bolshevik Jew. We're associated with the left by the right and the right by the left because the Jew stands in as the other. So whatever the boogeyman is, we, we take on that role. Yeah, I guess that's true. I just thought it was interesting that they were deviating from their original trope of what the Ferengi are and mm-hmm. showing Rom as this revolutionary. There's a really rich history of like the Jewish labor movement. And I think of the Jewish General Labor Bund, which was a secular Jewish socialist party in Imperial Russia that fought like against anti-Semitism and for workers' rights. And, you know, that spawned 
so many things like there was the polish wing that was then connected to the warsaw ghetto uprising the bund proper was like anti-zionist but they had zionist splinters which were the forebearers to the kibbutz movement and the israeli labor party and also down the street from my house is the headquarters of habonim drawer which is like the last vestige of the labor zionist youth movement in north america <laughs> yeah the history there feels really close to me because like my grandfather was involved in the Jewish Labor Bund, which became the Jewish Labor Committee. And that was an organization that here in Ontario was really important in the early 20th century in fighting discrimination. In the 1930s, they successfully lobbied for the first ever anti-discrimination legislation in Ontario. Hmm. And now like I'm wary of taking credit for a history that I wasn't a part of because like even the Jewish Labor Committee, they butted heads with the like so-called official community representatives, the Public Relations Committee of the Canadian Jewish Congress, which doesn't exist anymore, but was sort of like folded into CESIA, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, which is still like the like self-appointed official community voice of Jews in Canada, even though it, you know, really speaks more for a donor class than being a representative organization. What I meant more, though, was actually the, the trope about Jews, not the actual culture of Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. So I liked Bar Association because it actually veered towards the true culture of Jews rather than the portrayed one as being profit-driven. I will admit when Rom quotes the Communist Manifesto, I'm like so cringed out that I have to watch the screen through like the slits between my fingers. <laughs> and I think Lita is like a really interesting character and I wish they'd used her more. But some of the delivery in, in this episode just made me go like, <laughs> there's a lot of weird things in this one. I, I love the line by Chief O'Brien. Have you any idea how bored I used to get sitting in the transporter room waiting for something to break down talking about his time on the Enterprise? Yeah. There's a cartoon series called Chief O'Brien at Work. And it, I'm pretty sure that line inspired it. And it's just like O'Brien sitting around while nothing happens by a cartoonist named John Adams. I like that Worf still has the tooth sharpener that he bought from Nog. And I love that Odo has a pad on his desk with a list of all of Worf's screw-ups on the Enterprise. <laughs> like, I know I'm going to need this one day, so I'm going to put it right here. And it's just one click to, like, the list of bad things Worf did. <laughs> but of course, Worf and Odo are the union busters. They're always the ones raining on people's parades on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, they're the police. <laughs> yeah, and they're kind of like bad cops too like they beat up suspects i don't think you're at this point in deep space nine yet but like at one point odo offers to arrest religious minorities because they offend his girlfriend and he does it like sort of in jest but uh not unlike know. the real world <laughs> right you know what's crazy about this episode mm. when it aired and throughout like most of the run of deep space nine armin shimmerman who plays quark was a labor organizer he was on the, the board of the Screen Actors Guild, hmm. and actually he was also on the team for them that was collectively bargaining on behalf of the union in their new deal with the Association of Talent Agents. Really? So while all of Quirk's union busting is going on, Armin Shimmerman was like actually organizing on behalf of a real-life <laughs> labor union. And I do love the care and attention that Shimmerman brought to it. I think he's a, a man who really took seriously his craft, and I learned in the Deep Space 
Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind, that before every one of these Ferengi episodes, he would have the whole crew of regulars, so like all the regular Ferengis, plus like Lita or whoever was in the, the episode at the time, over to his house before the official rehearsals, and they would all like work through the episode together. And so I, I really respect that a lot. So nice. How about the Magnificent Ferengi? What'd you think of that one? It was like, okay, showing how, yeah, we don't need to be strong because we're smart and we can trick them. I actually think that that is something that Jews think about themselves sometimes. What did you think of Magnificent Bringy? I dig this episode. Okay, go on. I think that Deep Space Nine saw the failure of the Ferengi as a villain and said, like, we're going to make them funny and interesting. And this episode is funny and interesting. Mm -hmm. It's my kind of humor, like the Weekend at Bernie's stuff when they're making the dead Vorta go around and a little bit of Benny Hill thrown in there. (laughs) But also just like the little bits, like... Um, like Rom and Quark taking a wrong turn in the Jeffries tubes and being in Cisco's office. Like, I feel like I've been waiting for that bit to happen through all of Star Trek. <laughs> I think that it's effective and that maybe I give this episode more of a pass than other ones in that it feels like a good episode. Like it held my attention. Nog is like really ridiculous in it and Brent is really ridiculous and they're all being, you know, they have these ridiculous characters that have kind of been like flanderized over the course of the series, but they're doing them really well. And so I guess I'm saying like, I can look past a certain level of offensiveness in art if it's good art. (laughs) And the last outpost was bad art. And so I hold it to a higher standard. (laughs) Yeah, I think they, they just like redeem them. Like, mm-hmm. even if it's offensive, they they were still really good characters in this episode. It's quite a transformation of, like, the Ferengi in the last outpost seen as this menacing threat that is at a technological level on par with the Federation. Like, the idea that the Ferengi marauder could go head-to-head with the Enterprise. Whereas in this one, it's like, we're going to be the first Ferengi ever to fight in any kind of situation <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing. Is it such a bad thing to be very docile? And I don't know, I guess they're sneaky. So yes and no. Um, Like Quark says in the episode, The Siege of AR-558, when he's like criticizing the Federation for getting into a war, he's like, we wouldn't have let this happen. We would have made a deal. We would have found a way. There's no profit in fighting. And like, yeah, he's talking about profit there. But in the context of that situation where Pork is dealing with like a loved one who's been injured, he's really talking about the cost of war. And and he's saying like, no, we don't put up with that kind of violence. Mm -hmm. We would have made a deal. We would have worked it out. So you're saying that really the Ferengi are just really good diplomats. Well, the novels, and the novels always go out of their way to, like, fix all the problems of the series. They come up with a super interesting answer here. Their approach is to say that Grand Nagus Zek, when he learned of the Federation, because, like, before the last outpost, the Ferengi and the Federation hadn't met, that when he learned of the Federation and their moneyless society and total absence of need, he saw them as an existential threat to the Ferengi economy that could like devastate their influence. Mm -hmm. And so he concocted this like convoluted propaganda campaign to make the Federation think that the Ferengi were this like fierce enemy. Now there's like nothing in the text of the show, like the canonical Trek that supports that, but it does fit and it like makes a lot of the problems of the changes of the Ferengi go away. One thing I remember noticing, actually it was in a TNG episode, it was all about 
the Ferengi death ritual. And it was shockingly Jewish. It was kind of upsetting because Beverly was trying to violate their traditions, basically mutilating this dead Ferengi on their ship mm-hmm. because they wanted to do an autopsy or something like that. And the tradition was really opposed to that. And that's very Jewish as well. And I thought that was interesting. Are autopsies not allowed in Judaism? I don't think so. I think the body has to be buried perfect. I think that one's called Suspicions, and it's kind of a good one because I think it was one of the first times in Next Gen that the Ferengi were cast in a different light with, like, a Ferengi who wants to pursue science instead of profit. I really like that episode, yeah. And also a Klingon who's a scientist, too. Oh, that was a good one. (laughs) So, two episodes that we didn't talk about are Rules of Acquisition and Profit and Lace. Rules of Acquisition is the one where Quark has a business associate who he thinks is a Ferengi man, but is actually a Ferengi woman passing as a man so that she can operate in sort of like Ferengi masculine society without being thrown out. The other one is Profit and Lace, which is like a really cringy episode, even though it has a certain hilarious charm to it. It's one that I think I skip in almost every watch through. And that's where Quark has to dress in drag. And it seems to be done like just entirely for a laugh without any attention given to it. I think that we should come back to those two episodes when we talk more about some gender issues in the future. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. I wonder if it like is actually in reference to what Jonathan Brampman was telling us. Uh, Yeah, I think there is a tie there. And I also just wanted to shout out the podcast Women at Warp. They've talked a lot about both of these episodes, uh, Profit and Lace and Rules and Acquisition. So check out their podcast. It's one of my favorites. So do you have any closing thoughts on the Ferengi? Do you think the Ferengi can be fixed or should Star Trek just kind of walk away from them? You mean like going forward if they were to have Ferengi again in a newer series? Mm -hmm. I guess I don't really like the idea of fixing them. I think that they should walk away from them. What do you think? I don't know if the Ferengi are the way to do it. I think that Star Trek has succeeded in the past when it's been able to hold up a mirror to society and like the destructive power of capitalism in every aspect of our society and the way it's ravaging like people's lives and the physical environment of this planet. Those need to be addressed in Star Trek. And if there is a way to strip the Ferengi of racist tropes and use them as that metaphor, I'm all for it. But I also think that I'm all for Star Trek going in bold new directions. And there are lots of ways that they can get at those critiques. So Chava. Yes. One thing that we do on Star Trek and the Jews is we see if we can find an afikomen, which is something hidden, a little Jewish dessert uh, within the episodes that we've watched. So Josh. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you have an afikoman this month? Okay, I do, but it's barely Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Picard and Damon Targ, when they first meet, they argue for a full minute about whether or not they should switch from a phone call to FaceTime. (laughs) And then when they do FaceTime, Tar is like not holding the camera right and it's too close to his head. And I don't know if that's like Jewish or not, but I certainly encounter it with many of my relatives. (laughs) (laughs) Chava? Yes? Did you find an afikoman? Okay, so my afikoman is not from our Hebrew school homework. Uh, Sorry, but not sorry. And it's when Quark says that a contract is a contract, but only between Ferengi. And I hate that this is a fairly accurate Jewish trope. Um, that 
relations or business relations between Jewish people are considered different by Jewish law than relations between Gentiles and Jewish people. I think that that has drastically changed, but just the the foundations of that are disturbing to me. Too sad. A little bit. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like today's episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us out a lot because ratings are how people find out about our show. Thank you to Professor Jonathan Brampton for joining us at Rev Alert. Your Hebrew school homework for next month is the Next Generation episode, Darmok. It's a great one. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Our end credits are Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons. We'll see you next month. See ya!